0: we get going and then uh, we'll get rolling. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we just uh, have been humbled by your word, Lord, uh, by what your spirit has uh, shown us in our lives when uh, when we've been taken to the word. And Lord, uh, we give you so much thanks for that. Lord, uh, we thank you that that you love us enough to uh, to desire change in our lives, um, so that we can bring honor to you, Lord. We thank you that you have given us that purpose, and Lord, as we uh, spend this time this afternoon, may you be glorified, Lord. May we be submissive to uh, to your word, Lord. When it is spoken, help us to uh, to really take it to heart, Lord. Take it back with us. Look at it. Um, and let it change us. Lord, we pray that uh, you would be with the panel members. Lord, uh, give them humility, your wisdom, Lord, and not, uh, and not human wisdom. Lord, they've made it clear that uh, that we need your wisdom. So, Father, just uh, we ask you to be with us during this time. And may it uh, edify us and glorify you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Just a couple things as the panel uh, comes up to take their seat. Um, we have lots of written questions, but as you hear them, re- as you hear responses uh, from the panel, feel free to uh, to ask follow-up questions, uh, to interact with the panel as they answer. Um, they'll cut you off if uh, they're sick of it. Right <laughs> here. And um, another thing I would ask, uh, as, you, as you get ready to ask a question of the panel, um, please ponder whether it's a question or whether it's a statement. Uh, and and we, we'd appreciate questions <laughs> and, uh, and if they need more explanation for your question You can be sure they'll ask you for it So uh, feel free just to ask the question And let them uh, probe for a response And uh, I'll get out of the way okay. I'll,
1: I'll share
0: okay. question for Mr. Henriksen <laughs> <laughs> And you know, it's, uh, it's ironic that you start by, by saying $30, because this has to do with uh, reward and punishment. Could you explain reward and punishment for those who are saved? We are forgiven, yet held accountable for our actions on earth. Is this just varying degrees of reward and eternity, this accountability? In your opinion, what will this reward and punishment look like?
2: Well, T.J. Uh, flushes out for us what punishment looks like. <laughs>
3: the guy that
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't realize I was insulting you <laughs> gentlemen the formula is very simple salvation is by grace rewards are by works Jesus is the reason you get to heaven but your performance determines the quality of that eternity and what it looks like we're left guessing Any, any answer I can give you to that is just pure speculation but I can assure you of one thing on the basis of scripture and that is that the differences will be both apparent and appreciable if you care what your standard of living is here don't imagine for a moment you won't care in eternity and here you've got 80 years mas o menos, in eternity well eternity is eternity
4: could you give us some examples of what you're thinking
2: regarding what Mark
4: uh, you just said it's a from scripture I wanted to give a
2: couple apparent examples well yeah they've, they've been used in the, in the ta- conference this time uh, the brother over here made reference to Revelation chapter 20 verses 10 to 12 um, somebody commented on 2nd Corinthians 5 verse 10 of course the passage in 1st Corinthians 3 verses 10 to 15 um the passage we looked at this morning, Great is your reward in heaven. And he goes on to expand on that. Chapter 6 of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, don't lay up treasures on earth, but lay them up in heaven. Chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Those are just starters.
4: Thank you. <laughs> All right. no, thanks for not asking me to quote those.
0: All right. Next question for Bill. And I assume this is a follow-up to your talk yesterday. I'll interpret. Why is there no such thing as successful evangelism? Um
5: must have been one of the guys in our group. Um If we put those two terms together, it invariably involves problems for us and a misunderstanding of what evangelism is and why we do it. We do it for the simple reason that we are commanded to do it. And uh, we do not know when we evangelize where we fit on the spectrum of that person's Salvation. Uh, are we the Apollos who planted? Are we the Paul who watered? And most of us tend to think of ourselves in uh, 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 evangelism in terms of causing the harvest. And so, if you if you have this performance-oriented notion, i.e. I know my evangelism is effective because when I shared it with Mark he accepted Christ. You simply won't do it. After your first series of failures you will say this is not my gift or some other rationalization and you will stop. Not understanding that you are the person who planted and or you may be the person who wanted. You just don't know. So that's one reason uh, that there's no su- successful evangelism in, from a temporal standpoint, of seeing that person <clears throat> declare Christ at your word right then and there. It is always successful if you obey God. That is, you evangelize. You share the gospel, regardless of the person's reaction. So if you begin to think of successful evangelism in terms of performance rather than in terms of obedience, then if the person does not make an instant declaration for Christ or just the opposite, the person has an extremely negative reaction which is actually fairly uncommon. Other than say, well you know that's good for you. Most of us Never get that in your face. I don't want to ever hear from you. It happens. But if it happens, you will conclude that you did something wrong and that you don't know how to do it. And you will, again, it will tend to demotivate you and you won't do it because you got this strong reaction and it was obviously something in your performance which screwed things up. So that's another reason if you start talking about successful evangelism in in terms of wanting to see an immediate result. And and the third reason, because if you focus on the immediate result, you will start to have a series of formulas about how to evangelize. And you'll take your little checklist and you will start going through the steps to do that when the Spirit of God may be leading you differently. I'm not saying it's, it's wrong to have your own style or certain procedures, but those are just, you hold those very gently. The important thing is to listen to uh, the, the Spirit of God for a particular application in a given context. So it's not just lifestyle evangelism where, you know, you can't share the Word of God until You uh, strike up a relationship, invite them to dinner, go bowling, go fishing, and then you share. No, it may be from the Spirit of God that you walk right up to somebody and just ask, where do you stand with Jesus Christ? You don't have any relationship with them at all. And you may never see that person again. Well, if you start thinking in terms of successful evangelism, you won't do that because you don't have time to implement your formula so that you you can close the deal. And so the issue is you will always be successful eternally. God will reward you for your faithfulness to the opportunity for obeying the Great Commission. You will always be rewarded for that. But again, we don't fix on that. We fix on the temporal. So from the temporal (laughs) perspective, successful evangelism is a terrible misnomer that will lead us to not evangelize. Do we have a follow-up question? What about
1: successful
5: discipleship? Well, I think that's, uh, again, uh, that is, uh, it can be misleading. Not as readily, apparently so as with evangelism. Uh, The Bible tells us if a man, some of the earmarks that we look for, if a man is taking on the qualities of Jesus Christ in his life. Uh, But you are not responsible for a person becoming godly. You are responsible for modeling godlikeness. You are responsible for loving correction if a brother goes wrong. But in terms of changing a brother's heart, you're not responsible for that and so if you take on that responsibility as though it were your own and not the spirit of God's it will discourage you from discipleship because you say all my men are you know they're dropping out so why am I doing this Now, we still have you know Timothy says the things that I have taught you before many witnesses uh, teach thou to who? faithful, faithful men Well. You may want to have the wisdom of investing your time in a faithful person as opposed to somebody who is not faithful. But you had to do that gently because the same man who wrote that wiped his hands of Mark, remember? And Barnabas took on the task of discipleship. But then at the end of Paul's life, he said what? Bring me John Mark, for he is profitable to me. Uh, So, again, we get these formulas, and we tend to substitute these formulas for seeing a man grow in Christ. And the other danger is that you add to what Scripture says, if you're like me, you have a tendency to add to what Scripture says. And if this guy is really walking with Christ, he won't smoke cigarettes. Uh, he He won't dance. If he does baptism, it will be full water, not sprinkling, or whatever. Uh, and so you want to be careful when you're talking about successful discipleship. What do you mean by that? And why does the term successful, what does it add at all to the responsibility to disciple and to be faithful to another man? What does it add except for reflection of our
0: performance-oriented culture? Alright, the next one for Winston. Would you please comment and expand on the relationship, similarities, and differences between conscience and the promptings of the Holy Spirit? (laughs) (laughs) You have two minutes. (laughs)
6: Gentlemen, what little I know about the conscience. Uh, I read uh, a paper written by um, Walt Hendrickson, so I'd like to have him explain it.
2: Gentlemen, uh, the question was to our rather shy but esteemed speaker. I think that a thorough round of applause may help him to get over this.
6: I'll start this but I, I would predict we'll end up with him. He has done a, an extensive study on the whole area of conscience seriously. And so um, I'll give it a shot but I think we'll probably have to go to the author of the paper I read uh, to to get some closure to it, yeah. <clears throat> well, just I think the conscience is a uh, is a product of our being uh, created in the image of god so all men have a conscience but uh, the conscience uh, varies among men as you well know and so the uh, the conscience is a uh, it can be and is uh, conditioned and uh, so we um, we can trust the conscience in the area of uh, I think if we are wrong the conscience will tell us that. But um, I'm not sure that's totally right. I'm going to have to go with the author here in a minute. Um, But we can't trust it in in the fact that you can skew your conscience so much that um, just because your conscience doesn't bother you doesn't mean that uh, you're, you're in violation. I mean that, that it's right. And I, I, seriously, I want, I want Walt to speak to that a little more because he's, he's really done a lot of study on that. The Holy Spirit, I think, you know, Paul says that uh, his, spirit, his spirit bears witness with our spirit. And um, you know, you know when you know, when you know that God's spoken to you, do you not?
1: Amen.
6: Yeah. And so there. Walt, would you uh, would you expand on conscious seriously uh, a little bit with
2: the guys? Yeah, I, Yeah, you said it perfectly. There's just the the way I would summarize what you said was that the. Uh, the conscience has the power to condemn, but not absolve. And the conscience is authoritative in our lives, but not absolute. Scripture is absolute.
5: can I add something to that? Oh, Don, you had a comment. Walter, stage first about
1: conscience seems to me like the only time I think I've
3: got my conscience operating is when I'm in fear of being caught.
2: That's why I say, Don, it has the power to condemn. It has no power to absolve. I think it's probably true for all of us
5: I'd like to add to that I'm going to but this is I'm just quoting from Walt in another context it's a uh, because we made in the image and likeness of God we have this internal gyroscope that tends to tell us when we are out of kilter but it is informed shaped and affected by the cultures we live in. And when I say cultures, we have a family culture, we have a community culture, and we have a societal culture. So um, there was the case of the young men in the Southern California who belonged to the something posse. I can't remember the name. But but in that group, their goal was to fornicate with as many high school girls as possible by whatever means. So they would have the date rape drug and all. Well, their culture informed their conscience and began to so desensitize them to, this, to, the, to, the, to the directions of the gyroscope that it just went completely out of kilter. And they thought that this was not only acceptable, but was a way of gaining prestige within that culture. And so while we have these consciences that have a, has, have a tendency to keep us somewhat balanced, we can, by not listening to the Spirit of God or, or reading the Word of God, let that gyroscope go so a kilter that we can think it's all right to rape or to see that another brother gets fired because you want his job. Or to filch a little bit because I want to get a piece of evidence admitted into court. And obviously it differs from the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit can't be manipulated.
1: Is it true that you could say the conscience is like a
4: learned cultural thing and that it may be wrong, it may be at opposition with
1: the Holy Spirit? It's your internal value system
5: if you're not with the Holy Spirit it could be wrong it can be wrong we don't create the conscience we have one but but once we have it as just part of the fact that we are created in the image and likeness of God all these other forces other than God can influence it and yes it can be very <laughs> close to the spirit of God
0: alright Walt well, question for you Please explain what you meant in your talk when you spoke on biblical view of vocation when you said God is the author of chaos. Mm-hmm.
5: Great question.
2: <coughs> well, Winston is the one who has the vocation, and I learned it from him, so I think he's the one that can be <laughs> <the> best. <laughs> sure, yeah. uh, <boy. Yeah.
3: laughs>
6: In the economy of God, the, uh, the road to God is dependence, the road away from God is independence. And so God has structured life for all men, believers and non-believers, that each one of us will live by faith. God says that's, that's a given. So the issue isn't living by faith; it's uh, it's the object of our faith is. And so, as life, as all of us move through life, God brings all kinds of circumstances and events, and uh, all kinds of meatheads into our lives that create all kinds of of uh, chaos and. Uh, and uh, uncertainty and, um, and that's all of God to force us to look to Him and Him only for our security for our significance Paul went to God and asked Him to remove the thorn in the flesh and God's answer to him was my grace is sufficient for you For power is perfected in weakness. And everything about us doesn't want to be there. We're a bunch of control freaks. And God says, I'm the one that's in control. Let me remind you. How about some chaos, just to bring you back into focus?
1: Question. Talk about God creating chaos. did he allow it to happen, or did he cause
6: it? To happen? <clears throat> well, let me ask you, my brother: Is is God sovereign?
3: Yes.
6: Is He omnipotent? Yes. Then, does anything happen in your life without Him uh, uh, being able to stop it? Okay.
0: Another follow up question on the chaos issue. <clears throat> Do you think the chaos evidence in our world today is greater or less than it was at the time of Christ? So do, you. Hmm. do you think the level of chaos evidence in our world today, and particularly in the United States, is greater than or less than it was at the time of Christ? In other words, does chaos vary over time? Who are you asking? Well, what's
3: oh, the answer then? to the oh, okay.
6: question? Feel <laughs> well, to pipe in okay. Well. We live in a time when um, primarily through uh, technology the rapidity of life has uh, has picked up if you haven't noticed. From the PC to the fax to the email to the on and on and on. And I can remember even in my life being in the real estate business that it hadn't been long ago that uh, I might get a call from a buyer and he'd say, you know, you have, um, I have interest in buying a, pr- a property and uh, I'm going to send you a contract. And So it may be, f- it might be four or five days before I'd get that. So I'd, I'd have time to think about that before I ever got the contract and so on. Now he doesn't call me, he just emails it or faxes it over and say I'd like to hear by 5 this afternoon and that's where all of you are living isn't it and I think what the day we live in today we because of that uh, it may very well be that we're more apparent it's more apparent to us that we are out of control and that's We see, you know, stress is a big thing in in our society. A lot of talk about it and a lot of approaches to it. But uh, it's... uh, it almost throws you into vertigo. Some. I remember when I was a kid, we lived on a ranch, and uh, my dad was a very fast driver. And so we'd be driving, we'd be driving down one of those country roads, uh, 80, 90 miles an hour, and just sitting there as a junior high kid, and and the telephones then were just little, little, t- fairly small poles, and they were pretty close together. And we'd be going so fast that those poles would almost look like one pole. You know, they just start blurring together. Together. You guys ever feel that way sometimes in your own life, you know? And so, I I, th- I think we probably we may very well be more uh, it may very well be more obvious to us that we're out of control. And uh, see, I think that's a, that's a blessing of God because it forces us. It can force us back to. He's the only. Stabilizing person principle that we can grab a hold of and isn't going to move. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And. Um
2: He's talking about how we are to govern ourselves within the church that the spirit is subject to the individual he's never out of control and so he's talking about the regulation of the gifts in 1 Corinthians 14 and um, so when he says that God is not the author of confusion he's saying that when you are violating the commandments of God you can't blame it on the leadership of the Holy Spirit that's all he's saying there. But let me ask you, gentlemen, um, where do earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, blizzards, and the like come from? Are they random? Are they arbitrary? Or is there a purpose behind it? I'm not suggesting that we have the ability to understand the reason, but does the scriptures seem to suggest to us that he is the author of it and there is a reason? Again, as Winston pointed out, if God is sovereign, the difference between allowing and doing is moot.
0: Was there a question?
2: There's a guy back here. I don't know if he... I was
1: just going to say that um, maybe we each need to drive
2: our own reason out of what
1: the traffic must make thoughts. Don't do that. Maybe there is
2: a purpose and it's different for you first. But yeah, I would suggest to you that trying to determine the reason will prove to be counterproductive to your relationship with God. Just don't do that.
1: you have a question? Yes. this thing is not standing on the right pressure. Uh, <clears throat> from my understanding of God, uh, in the beginning he was. He knew everything before he was created. He knew what you would do your whole life before you knew. Uh, also he created the heavens and earth. In the heavens, um, there was Lucifer. The and he was just saying. He knew what he was going to do created so this. So let he be chaos. If you want to say that statement will be you. If you want to use that context, God created him. So on one hand, people look at, you know, we look at bringing it down from Earth to plane. <coughs> you look at mass murderers and everything wonder how to it, You allow something like that to happen. Well, in all tragedies, just like in all blessings, he gets a to door somewhere or another. So
2: I would think, well, yes, he's got to be so the road. Do you have a comment on that? Am I the right to practice that? Or? Well, gentlemen, you cannot assume that the tornado and earthquake and hurricane, etc. That terminates the lives of so many people is bad. You can't call that bad. Now it's only bad if we become precipitous with God and break His commandments. So let's say the serial killer comes in here and he takes a weapons and kills ninety percent of us, all of us. We're all dead in here. Um, Our death is not an accident. We don't, we don't arrive in heaven with God saying what in the world are you doing here and so God takes issue with the perpetrator of the crime because he's violated the commandments not because he has put in jeopardy the plan of God so God says I and only I can take the life and of course, I charge the state with the responsibility for capital offenses, but that's a different thing. But you cannot assume that because your wife dies of cancer, that it was bad. Now, the world will tell you it is bad. But God is good, and you have to decide. is He the author of this, and if he is, then you cannot call it evil.
1: about
0: Can we keep the questions for the panel? You want to address to the, to the panel? Sure. Did you hear the second half of the question yeah.
2: yeah, well, gentlemen, Satan is never the first cause to anything. Never. He is only the secondary cause. He functions at the will of God, as evidenced by the book of Job. I can't touch him without your permission. So God says in Job 2, verse 3, I, God, destroyed Job. Satan is merely the vehicle, as was the weather, as was the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans. I destroyed him, and parenthetically, without a cause. No reason for it. I just decided to do it. Then he says to Job do you have a problem with that?
3: <laughs>
2: and Job works it over in his mind a little bit and talks with God at the end and says, No, I think probably I have no problem with it at all. So getting back to, to, uh, to the person who murders, does that means that God
1: causes that person to murder? And
2: him? No. Let's go back to the story of Uriah the Hittite that, that uh, Bill talked about last night. First of all, I think you and I would be in agreement that when Uriah died and went to heaven, God did not say, what in the world are you doing here? You know, I wasn't planning on you for another 10 years. But brother, let me suggest to you that... Uh, God says, um, you know, it's time for Uriah to die. How am I going to get him here? And David says, you know, I'd like to kill the man.
3: <laughs>
2: and God says, you know, that's not a really good idea. I really would not recommend that. And David says, yeah, I know, but I want to do it. I've got some reasons of my own. I want to kill him. You understand? I'm going to hold you accountable for it. That's murder. I don't condone it. Don't sanction it. I'll hold you accountable. Yeah, I understand, but I want to go ahead and do it. Be my guest. So <laughs> really Yeah. You are able to enter into the permissive will of God, but never at the expense of another individual. Never forget that.
0: Okay. <laughs> Bill. <laughs> As a new believer, I'm curious to know if there is a biblical distinction between Our sins committed as non-believers and our sins committed after we are saved.
2: I'm not...
5: (laughs) Thank you, (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that I understand the question. If if the question is, is there a difference in the character or quality of the sin on one side or the other of salvation, no, sin is sin. Uh, and uh, if the question is, are there different consequences, well, yes, before you were saved, you know that... Uh, those sins were part of the weight that would take you further down into hell. That it would be one more thing in hell that you would regret. Um, Once you are saved, uh, the place of your regret is different, but not the presence of regret. In other words, I, I, I have sinned as a believer and I go to heaven and, and uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you know, it, these things are going to be weighed, you're going to go through fire, and some of us will suffer what? Oh. Loss. Well, the only way we could suffer a loss if, if it feel, uh, is that it feels like a loss. It's, otherwise, it's no loss. We, um, so there is regret or a sense of lost opportunity in heaven or in hell. Um, Now, to whom much is given, much is what? Required. Required. And so we have to answer to God for knowing so much more. Here's an unbeliever who's never read the Bible, never heard about Jesus Christ, lives in a really aberrant culture in terms of the gospel. There's no, very little reflection of the gospel in that culture. And that person commits a crime, rape, or whatever. And I, as a believer, do the same thing. Well, I have so much more in terms of accountability because of what I know now than the... Primitive, who wasn't informed about anything of that except from the natural law. You with me? So uh, my salvation brings to me a deeper sense of accountability. Um, and then lastly, I'd say that uh, on this side of the cross, unsaved, Uh, I might commit sin and have very little regret about it on this side of the grave. My conscience is seared. I'm used to this. And it 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 ceases to bother me. But when I become a believer and now all of a sudden I have the Spirit of God and I try to do the same thing, then I am under such conviction that the same act done before salvation, my peace was not ruffled. But now having received Jesus, the same act produces in me such intense disquiet that I must go before God and beg his convenient uh, uh, forgiveness. I, I don't know how else to answer that question. I, forgive me, I don't know who who asked it, and I don't have any confidence that I have under stood your question sufficiently, or have answered it sufficiently.
0: Is there a
1: follow-up? You know, when we take a look at, uh, you know, when you take a look at you know, counting the you certainly no one would stand. When we take a look at uh, those at, you know, missed opportunities, and you bring those you know, into First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, <coughs> and you're confessing missed opportunities, which we all can look at daily as missed, Um I'm having difficulty understanding that those are brought into heaven. I guess I'm looking at, at the blotting nature of God's blood and our sin, blotting out our sins, you know, eliminating it, you know, as far as the east is from the west. And, I'm, I'm, and then I think of Revelation 21, 4, where God shall wipe away all tears from our eyes, here shall no more death, neither sorrow nor cry, neither shall there be any more pain. For so the former things, these opportunities are are, are, are away when I think of regret I think of pain and sorrow how how is that how is that concept of missed opportunities and discussion and then
5: resting in our our rest or reward Uh, it's just I'm I'm not finding it compatible Uh, the the two very different concepts that we it's important for us to fix on and what is our salvation our relationship with God And God guarantees us that when we are saved, that no sin will interfere with our salvation. We are saved. Once saved, always saved. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. Nothing you can do to make God love you less when you are saved but that does not mean that there are no and you confess your sin and he says in terms of our relationship you being my adopted son I'm telling you and I'm guaranteeing you that your sin will not sever that relationship you understand me so far okay Uh, now let me give you an example and this is a crude example um you and your wife have no children, you decide to adopt a child and you tell this child, look, I love you, I love you. And nothing is going to interfere with our relationship. You can always live in this house. And uh, that child, adopted child, does some things but because of your character and your commitment to the promises, nothing interferes in your relationship with that child. But that child, while living in your house, drives your car, bangs it into a tree, and because he was drinking, and you forgive him. The relationship is still warm. There's no loss of affection. And he comes back into the house, but you don't let him drive the car anymore. He has the benefits of that home, but he doesn't have the car. That's a crude example. But the concept that I'm trying to get across is that the rewards that we get in heaven, and God doesn't tell us clearly what those rewards are. Maybe it's an area of governance. Maybe it's the number of crowns we have. Maybe it's the deepened ability to enjoy God. You know, we enjoy him. And have you been with some people and they just seem to enjoy God more? Now you're saved and you look at them and you say, now I I am thankful for my salvation, but boy I wish I could experience God the way that person does. So I'm speculating, don't hold me to this, that when we get to heaven we will enjoy God and we will know him. But there will be a difference in the quality of our experience in heaven. That God, for his own sovereign purposes, doesn't spell that out for us. And maybe because knowing how we are, we would weigh the... We would weigh, well, you know, maybe I can, I could forego that. And we'll commit, we'll commit the sin. So he doesn't tell us that. But he does tell us, and it stands to reason, that there will be a qualitative difference for our experience and in heaven. And it'll be a qualitative experience for people in hell. Some parts of hell will be worse. I mean, it's hell. Nobody wants to be there. But it'll be worse for some people than others.
0: TJ had his hand. Maybe he has a comment. Any other comments on that? Questions? TJ? I have a follow
4: up question? Maybe you could expound a little bit of, about when you say interfere with the relationship. It doesn't interfere with the relationship. Uh, the first question is, is: Is it better to say it doesn't change the, the essential nature of the relationship? Well, uh, let, the let, first question you, and I'll let you it. The, the, the second part of it is: How do we understand in First John 1-9, is directed believers?
5: How do we understand that?
4: How do we understand what's happening in the transaction? It seems to me that if we're asking for forgiveness, then it inhabits a different place than the consequence action. It inhabits, therefore, a more relational effect. As opposed to, the, I don't mean the status of our relationship, but the quality of our relationship.
5: See, from God's point of view, He loves us equally. His point of view... And comfortable with God. So that when he eventually confessed, he said, restore to me what? The joy of my salvation. Not the fact of his salvation, but the joy of it. So that sin interfered with the relationship in the sense that the believer... The believer, let me give you an example. I love my wife. I have an affair. She doesn't know anything about it. And she's just being as gracious to me and kind with fixing my favorite breakfast. And I can't enjoy it. We make love, but I I can't, because I am consumed with guilt. I don't deserve this kind of from her perspective the relationship has not changed but from mine my ability to enjoy it has changed and I need to get that right and I confess it and that brings me back into proper relationship. God has never moved out of proper relationship with us. We have moved out of proper relationship with God. So you understand what I'm saying? So from our point of view sure the relationship is affected Praise God that it's affected. Otherwise we'd be just like the moral lepers. A leg is lopped off and they don't know because they can't feel it. Thank God that we know that we're out of fellowship with Him. But He is never out of fellowship with us. Is there
1: a question? Again, our relationship with God where was initiated we were moral adulterers to begin with. Yes. And we think about being completely bankrupt from the outset. Total depravity is just that It's complete depravity. And I, again, when we take a look at, at, at God's forgiveness and His grace being poured out on our sin, I'm just having difficulty at, with, with the carryover. With, with, it, it appears or sounds like carryover.
5: Well, I don't know how to explain it anymore then let me encourage you uh, to go to the passages that deal with rewards and some that have been referenced today and pray over them and meditate over them. I'm not saying that in any sense of rebuke, but... But I think that is the best way to get a deeper understanding is just take those verses and meditate on them and ask God to open them up to you. What does this mean to my life? And I tell you, I understand that Mother Teresa, from my perspective, ought to have a better quality of experience in heaven than I do. I I thank God that I'm saved, but when I see the way she's led her life, I I I can't understand why... My experience in heaven should be exactly the same in quality as hers. I simply have not obeyed God the way she has. Is
0: there another question?
1: Yeah. You mentioned the quality and the value of heaven and hell. Then is there a way
0: to each sin? i been taught that sin is sin, no matter what you're Is there a way to sin? I mean... Are there
5: different degrees of sin? Yeah, that's what I'm asking. I've talked to somebody else. you on. He addressed you. You brought up sin. Talk about it. <laughs> uh, from, my, from my understanding of Scripture, there is a tendency to confuse the concept that he who has violated the law in one respect hasn 't violated the whole law, and people then move from that and say that all sins are the same and Just logically, we look at that and say, well that can 't be that that if I break the speed limit that 's the same as going into an orphanage and slaying all the babies uh, and so I put it to you this way uh, on the first concept: imagine a a uh, white sheet it is pristine clean and I come along and I take a little bit of dirt just a little bit no longer is that sheet clean, it's now dirty and, and so when I violate the law I, I violate the whole law, not every law, I violated it the, the, the law is intact or it is not so uh, would
1: that be us who greater experience and
4: because everybody has broken the law and if you have been saved
1: then it doesn't matter how much you've broken that law you still are saved by Christ and if I'm saying that you're going back to the, to the dirty sheet, all sheets are dirty then and they're all equal in value
5: and again the concept we're, we're talking about two different concepts one is, the, is salvation, which is done by the sovereign work of God. We contribute nothing to it. And, and the least sinner and the worst sinner are saved by the same process, God's divine and sovereign election. And nothing we do is going to interfere with our relationship with God. He will save us, not because of our sins, but despite them, by his own sovereign work. But then for us to think that we are not accountable to God for what we do from then on is not logical. And and, and, and it's not logical to, in terms of accountability to think that all I have to do is confess my sin and all consequences eternally are gone. And, and if you can find me a scriptural reference that says that I... Am not accountable in eternity for what I've done temporally, and I'm talking about confess sin. Show it to me. Give it to me.
0: All right, we're going to move to the next. Yes. Yeah. The next question.
5: Winston, Winston will be here later than uh, Walt and I, and uh, has humbly and lovingly made himself available to follow up on questions like that.
2: As a matter of fact, he asked us to leave early so that... (laughs) (laughs)
0: All right. Winston. In today's marketplace, there seems to be encouragement by headhunters and career counselors to open your eyes and look into other vocations. With regard to the comments about needing a compelling reason to change vocation, how do you view a change of vocation?
6: Well, obviously, uh, a change of vocation is uh, individual. And the ultimate decision, whether to or not to, is... uh, Even after you make the decision, you won't know whether it was the right decision because it's going to be made by faith. But I think there are some things that we need to really examine in our own life uh, as we contemplate a possible change. And one is to go back and review, as Walt pointed out to us yesterday morning, the uh, the three, three approaches to our vocation, whether we're seeking it for... Uh, for our uh, own purpose, significance, the thrill of it, or whether we're seeking it to earn money so we can do what we want to do, or if we see our vocation as a platform, um, our pulpit, one of our pulpits, to represent Christ. And I think if we go back and review that and get that into focus and make sure that our intent, at least, is number three. Uh, that'll get us a long ways down the, um, the road as far as making that decision. I remember uh, several years ago I was talking to a fellow that was the uh, national sales manager for a uh, Fortune 500 company. And I happened to be in his home and uh, uh, visiting with he and his wife. And they were, tell- they were telling me about all the things they were doing. They they were really gifted in terms of uh, couples and having couples in their home and, uh, and the discipling process and so on. And they were just overloaded with people. And uh, he was telling me about a conversation he had just had. Uh, he, he started as a young man and he was probably... Oh, 40 I guess when I was talking to him with this company and uh, he was kind of the fair haired boy with the president of the company and so the president had just come to him a couple of weeks before and said you know uh, John he said you understand that historically in our company that, a, that a, uh, the CEO of our company the president of our company never has come out of the sales part of our business He's always come out of the management part of the business, and so uh, for us to uh, to keep you moving in your career, you're going to have to. We're going to have to move you over into the management section of the business. So John and his wife really uh, debated this and were weighing out the factors of. It was going to require more travel. It was going to require more time, more pressure, just the learning of a new arena within the company and so on. And uh, John ultimately went back to the president and said, uh, you know, I cannot cannot maintain my priorities. And a major part of, obviously, his family, but also just the ministry that God had given them with couples. And he said, I really appreciate it. I'm honored that you would consider me for that. But uh, I uh, I respectfully going to have to decline, because I can't maintain my priority system and do that. And uh, so uh, I think if we go back to, if we're in number three, as Walt outlined them yesterday, I think pray and we'll sort through whether we ought to move or not move.
1: You follow yeah. yeah follow um, should I invest in the same amount of, of prayer and, and decision making when I'm switching my major in college I've been it three times? I don't know exactly what it is yet,
3: what I'm going to end up doing?
6: Again, I think the issues are the same thing. Yeah.
1: I want to direct to Bill. Yesterday you had said that you no longer pray that you are or become or try to be the best lawyer that you can be. And my question is, because this is often one of my prayers, that I can become or I am doing the things to become
5: the best coach that I can be. Is is that wrong? Uh, I think if I phrased it just that way, I I, I phrased it incorrectly. You said you wanted to be the best Uh, in the area. I wanted to be the best attorney in a ranking system. Um... I don't mind praying, God, and what I do pray is, Lord, today, give me, cause me to practice today with integrity, with efficiency, and in a way that will please you. I don't pray for the outcome anymore. I don't pray for my ranking among lawyers in San Diego or California anymore. For me personally, those are illegitimate prayers. And uh, for me, I don't pray make me the best attorney I can be because for me, I'm not talking about you, for me, knowing how I've prayed in the past, that smells too much like the former beast. I want to be very specific in my mind and not, not let my thinking get hazy because of my tendency to drift away from God and so let me ask you a a question collectively how good a tent maker was Paul (laughs) we have no idea God makes no reference to it at all And I presume it was because it was utterly irrelevant. (laughs) Similarly, we do not know how good a cabinet maker Jesus was. I mean, presumably, he was very good. (laughs) But there is nothing in the scripture that suggests to us that the people of Nazareth were lining up to buy some of those Jesus
3: cabinets
5: (laughs) because of the quality of their construction, right? Uh, Because it didn't matter. And, uh, And I am increasingly convinced as I recognize my own depravity and my tendency to want the things that bear no value to me eternally. How much I must labor to stay in focus. And for me, the Christian life is salmon swimming upstream. We are swimming against the current. Not sometimes, but all the time. And um, I, I don't want to lie to you and say it no, doesn't matter to me at all. But I can say to you that I don't want it to matter and that I'm asking God to work in my heart so that it doesn't matter.
0: Okay, Walt, question for you. You cautioned us yesterday about the use of the Old Testament in terms of its commands for us to obey. What advice can you give when we hear respected teachers who say don't do X or Y and use Old Testament quotes to support their position?
2: there are two fundamentally different approaches to the Old Testament and we won't take time to go into the reasons for that but they are as follows there are those who say that we're obligated to keep all Old Testament commandments unless they are repealed in the New Testament The other position is we're not obligated to keep any of the Old Testament commandments unless they are repeated in the New Testament. I'm of the second persuasion.
1: Why?
2: (laughs) Because Paul says we're not under the law. And also, gentlemen, because the people who hold the first position don't hold of the first position.
1: Do <laughs> <laughs> you think that's true that um, the reason the law was the first place to show us that how much we couldn't abide in it and that's how much that we needed Jesus anyway?
2: Uh, that's obviously one of the reasons that was given by Paul in Galatians, a schoolmaster that brings to Christ. And now that we're not in Christ, we're longer under the law. But I don't think that was the intent or idea in the minds of the people that heard it in Mount Sinai. And remember now that the new covenant, he says, I'll put my law into their hearts and in their minds will I write it. So the law continues into the millennium. A lot of the reason why the first position is held, gentlemen, is that the Fourth Commandment is the only one of the Ten Commandments not repeated in the New Testament. And so therefore, it becomes imperative in the minds of a lot of folks to get it in there, and that's the only way they can do it. And they can bring such other things as tithing and so forth in with it. But the truth of the matter is, none of us practice wearing clothes of only one kind of thread or sowing our fields with only one kind of crop, nor insisting that no bastard to the tenth generation shall come to church. I've not met a church yet that checks the pedigree of its congregation in that regard. That's why.
0: as a disciple of men you're going to have young believers in the faith coming to you and
6: asking you for guidance or direction on some things you know, they may hear a great teacher and I'm thinking of how to give them guidance without um, calling the, the pastor or the teacher's
4: integrity into question or saying they're wrong but giving them guidance in, in that that's really the heart of it I guess
2: I have to say, you're facing a problem I've never faced in my ministry. I've never found myself um, in that kind of position where I had to, so to speak, shoot a cannonball across the council of a pastor. I'm not but,
1: asking, they're not asking me to shoot a cannonball. They're asking me to give them guidance on should I believe this or what do you think about it.
2: Well, yeah. At that, I simply say you have to make your own judgment on it. I can tell you where I stand. Tell you why I stand. Sure. But you have to make your own decision on that.
0: Winston, in light of the anticipated increase in hostility towards one who lives a godly life in the marketplace, how do we prepare to live worthy of the calling to which we've been called in the midst of that hostility? And can we know what the hostility will look like and what the godly life will look like in that environment? i give you the easy one.
6: Well, I'll start at the last first. Uh, no, I don't think we'll know what the hostility looks like. Um, I think our preparation has to be to pursue our understanding and knowing God with all dispatch. Not serving God, but knowing God. Serving is a byproduct by product of knowing God. Yes. Amen. We have tremendous emphasis on doing in the body of Christ. And uh, I would suggest to you that the emphasis should be on being in that relationship. Let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. And that's the foundation for dealing with whatever life brings. Because we're probably all going to have times in our lives when, uh, when the, uh, the circumstance, if we look at the circumstances around us, they will do nothing but throw us into vertigo. Mm-hmm. Like Peter looking at the waves. So I would say, pursue, pursue God. Get serious about it. Make it your passion to understand and know Him. Just another practice. Thanks. I think a, a, a second, uh, just an application, uh, would be to. Uh, put yourself in a position with some like-minded brothers and when I say not like-minded all brothers are not like-minded but like-minded brothers that have have said I'm going to pursue Jesus at all cost and you come together in fellowship on a regular basis sharing your own lives uh, depending upon each other to watch out for your soul, and um, it's much easier to be objective by an, with another man's marbles than your own. Have you noticed? <laughs> so, I desperately need, and each one of us needs some brothers that are like-minded that'll be objective with my marbles. Because I'm the last guy to see that I'm in trouble, and it's obvious to them but I got to expose myself to them so I would say and I think uh, that's we may in our own lifetime see that it's going to be that's the body of Christ and we desperately need each other so.
0: From your talk yesterday evening, what are the practical ramifications of the difference between righteousness and holiness?
5: remember the story in the Old Testament of Nebuchadnezzar, who was rendered temporarily insane by God by reason of his pride. And for seven years, he walked on all fours and ate like an animal. And uh, Daniel protected him. And when he came to Nebuchadnezzar, when his right mind was restored, he understood how he had been living for the last seven years. And he praised God. And I am sure that there was an intense commitment on his part. An intense commitment on his part. Not to do anything to return to that lifestyle. So the the practical ramification for me of holiness being set aside by God, being set aside by God, I don't want to do anything that would put me back in my previous lifestyle. And on the issue of righteousness, which I, again, I told you yesterday, I saw as something different than holiness. I saw that it's being set apart by God. Well, my righteousness is, the, is how I'm living before God day by day. And the practical ramifications for me are simply how to do it day by day with no illusions about the price of doing it or the price for not doing it. So I don't know if I answered that question for the person, but uh, I'd be open to any other comments from my brothers here. All right, a
0: question for Walt. In light of the beatitude referring to meekness and peace, could you elaborate on our responsibility to our country in war? More specifically, if a foreign power comes in to take over our country, do we w- rise up with arms and resistance?
2: I don't think that the two uh, Beatitudes preclude um, military service. And um, we certainly are amenable to the law of the land and... Um, are responsible for the safety of our families. If a man came into my home in the middle of the night I thought was going to threaten my family, I'd do whatever it took to stop him. And I might regret what I had to do, but I don't think my conscience would bother me. Same also with war. And I don't think the Bible... There are people who disagree with me on this, but I don't think the Bible precludes military service.
1: You had a question? Yeah, I, I wrestle with that question a lot. I wonder, <coughs> in cases where we're not exactly sure why we're fighting, some of the wars, you know what the government says, or, you know, they, they the enemy didn't invade us, so there's not a clear cause to fight, or we, we may not be sure about that cause to fight. And is it enough for a Christian to go and kill a man because Uncle Sam says he's your enemy, go kill him. That's the enemy. Uh, they did this, or they did that. Go kill him. And I wrestled
2: with that a lot. Yeah, gentlemen, as well as everybody else, but I would say to you that um, as best I understand it, and I parenthesize, make a parenthetical comment as best as I understand it, that... Um, The law of the land says, and the Bible upholds, that I am not responsible for the justice or injustice of a war in which I am called to serve. But I am responsible for the justice and injustice of my acts in the course of that war. So for example, though we thought that Germany's war with the Allies was an unjust war, we never held men accountable who fought in the war. We only held them accountable if they committed war crimes
5: and if I may give one practical illustration too the Bible describes one man as the meekest on earth who was that Moses Moses. and Moses was the field or overall general for the nation of Israel who under the command of God was required to go to war and kill certain people. And Moses did not get a vote on that.
0: All right. Well, it is now 2 o'clock. Time has gone quickly and we did not get to uh, all the questions. Wow. Wow. But uh, to respect your time and the time of our panelists, we're going to uh, to cut off the group session here. But I encourage you to uh, continue to interact with them um, over the the free time. They can say that they don't want to, but uh...
2: But gentlemen, let me um, before we leave. Let me just in preparation for the choice pleasure of Winston's uh, presence. Let me give you a story that I think you ought to know about him.
3: <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Uh,
2: TJ and uh McCuren and uh, Winston were out playing golf a couple months ago. And they were behind a couple of guys that were just really slow, terrible, terrible golfers. And so finally, exasperated, they called the marshal over and said, uh, listen, let us play through or get these guys off the course. This is terrible. And the marshal said, listen, guys, just... You gotta be patient, you know. A year ago the clubhouse burned down and these two guys ran into the building, saved a number of lives, and in the process were blinded. And so we let them play the course. And TJ was really chagrined. He says, Oh man, I feel sick about this. Maybe we could gather the guys over here and pray over them. And McCurin says, Yeah, I just feel I feel terrible. I should never have been that presumptuous. I maybe maybe I could do some legal work for him to help him get some proper insurance. And uh, Winston said, uh, let him play at night.